And evil, if I may add, Charles, is parents using their children as a human shield, willing to kill their own children to make a political point. Our job is to stand up and defend these children. And what's so mind-boggling is that the media would stand up with Hamas and the parents who are sending their children to die and sacrificing them instead of standing up for the truth. My guest today is Brigitte Gabriel. Brigitte is a quintessential example of the 21st century American dream story. At 10 years of age, she survived a barrage of rockets exploding in her home in Lebanon, leaving her wounded and buried under the rubble. Brigitte and her family spent the next seven years in an 8x10 underground bomb shelter fighting to survive. She is also a New York Times bestselling author, and her latest book, Rise in Defense of Judeo-Christian Values and Freedom, is topping the charts. She also runs Act for America, the nation's premier nonprofit grassroots movement dedicated to preserving America's culture, sovereignty, and security. I recently sat down with Brigitte to discuss why the media is not getting it right on their reporting on the growing threat of Islamic terror and what we can do about it. Brigitte, I want to thank you for being on my show. I greatly appreciate it. I want to tell you, you're one of the very few guests that I was really excited about because we're kindred spirits, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But you, to me, in my opinion, when I watch you on TV, you epitomize what a confident, uh, strong woman is all about when you're speaking truth. You do not shirk from it. You are forceful. You remind me of many of my family members. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much. I am honored, Charles, and I'm I'm delighted to be with you. You know, I've got that 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 Middle Eastern chutzpah, you know, and uh, that's what you recognize. Actually, ironically, you know, this month the Golda magazine, named after Golda Meir, which um, you know, prints and across the Middle East and in Europe, they chose me as Golda of the month. So I was so honored wow. when they approached me with that. I said, you could not bestow a bigger honor on me than that because she was my idol. Yeah, Ben Gurion said, uh, Prime Minister of Israel at the time, she's the only man in my cabinet. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. So, okay. So, Brigitte, I want to talk, I want to start from the beginning because your life story is absolutely amazing because you didn't read history. You actually lived through it. You lived in a lot of scenarios that are still hotbeds today uh, in terrible, terrible conditions in Lebanon, which was Beirut was the Paris of the Middle East, and you've watched it become destroyed. And I want to go back there to, because I think, I think it really tells people what type of person you are from where you came and why you have the views you have. It's not that you have anger or hatred. It's You've seen all the stuff on the ground. Uh, I have passion because when you see evil, when you have been an eyewitness to evil and survive the evil, you do everything in your power to stop it, to fight it, to educate people about it. A lot of people tell me you are the Anne Frank who lived to tell about it. And, and that's what I try to do. Take that passion to do good, to fight for good, to fight for the underdog, to fight for the oppressed, to fight for the 
hurting and the suffering people that the world forgot about. Uh, and that's why I speak out so forcefully the way I do. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, Beirut used to be Paris of the Middle East. I, I got an email to my website uh, this week, someone asking me, why do you say, why do they call Beirut Paris of the Middle East? Why do you mention that? Because the new generation has have no recollection of history or why Beirut was Paris of the Middle East or why Iranian people were very westernized under the Shah, for example, before the arrival of Khomeini. Because a lot of things transpired that changed the world and world politics and, and the situation of, of, of people in these countries that today's generation who's raised in America or raised in the West cannot fathom how fast countries can change to go from freedom to the dark ages. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was born and raised in Lebanon, which used to be the only majority Christian country in the Middle East. We were open-minded, we were fair, we were tolerant, we were multicultural. We prided ourselves on our multiculturalism. And, and I want to answer the financially thriving community. It was extremely, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a mecca for banking and finance. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we were good in business. We built a lot of great companies and we did not have any oil. Uh, and so we we had open borders. We welcomed everybody from the surrounding Arabic countries who wanted to come and study in our universities. We built the best universities in the Middle East. Uh, they graduated and worked in our economy because we had built the best economy in the Middle East, even though we did not have any oil. Unfortunately, Charles, all that began to change when we started importing an influx of Palestinians into the country and people who came into our country who did not share our values. Uh, and once they became the majority, uh, and especially with the importing of Palestinians out of Jordan, with, Lebanon was the only country in the, in the Middle East to accept the third wave of Palestinian refugees, even though when they're own countries did not want them, their Arabic brethren. We took them in. That's what really tipped the scale of Wait, Lebanon. Let me, let, me hold, let me hang on a second, because many, many of our viewers, many of our listeners don't know this history, and I think it's extremely important what you're saying, is you spoke about a third wave. So the Palestinians happened to live in this area in the Middle East, which comprised what we know is today Israel and the majority being Jordan. 1947, November 29th, there's a partition. 30% goes to be called a Jewish state. 70% is the Arab state. And Jews were Palestinians. Palestinians is a location, not a nation. That's right. Never was. Exactly. Never was. There's nothing culturally separate for the Palestinians that are not for the rest of the... And most of the Palestinians are from Mansour. They're mostly Egyptian, right? Yasser Arafat was Egyptian. So, so we have that. So now, 1947, partition... 1948, seven Arab armies invade Israel on May 15, 1948, when Israel declares its independence. And we have a stream of Palestinian Arabs, because we're Palestinian Jews, Palestinians, leave because the Arab army is going to come in, and don't worry, we'll destroy the Jews, and then you'll get all your land back, and then some. That's first wave, correct? Correct. Okay, most of them correct. go to Jordan. A lot of them go to Jordan. I that's right. The majority of them go to Jordan. And what most people don't realize, and I know we're getting into the Palestinian-Israeli conflict right now, you know, we're diverting a little bit, but this is important history. When the PLO was founded in 1964, uh, Gaza 
was in the hand of Egypt. the um, Egypt and the West Bank was in the hand of Jordan. They were Jordan and Egypt. So when the PLO was founded in 1964, it was not founded to liberate the occupied territories that people think today of, oh, it's the West Bank and Gaza. The PLO was founded to eradicate Israel and the Jews from the map of the Middle East. They wanted to get rid of them. So after these wars, when they lost twice after doing a preemptive attack against Israel, the whatever leftover of the Palestinians scattered. Again, Lebanon took, that's when I said the third wave of Palestinians came into Lebanon, and that was after the war of 1973. And remember what King Hussein did to them. King Hussein in Black September killed thousands of them uh, because he wanted to get rid of them, and a lot of them fled to Lebanon. So when they came to Lebanon, by 1975, they formed their own army. That, that's when the Muslims in Lebanon, as well as the Palestinians, who happened to be majority Muslims, put their heads together and they created Jaish Lebanon al-Arabi, the Arabic Lebanese army. And in Lebanon, Lebanese do not refer to themselves as Arab because Christians are not Arab. We're Phoenicians. We just, we are Arab phones. We speak the Arabic language because that's what the Islamic conquerors, and they spread through the Middle East and conquered people. What's the best way to strip people out of their culture and identity? Strip them out of their, out of their language. So we went from speaking the Aramaic language, which is the language that Jesus spoke, which is still today is uh, practiced. And that's how we conduct our church service. I'm a Maronite. And this Sunday, if you go to any church anywhere in the, Mar in the world, a Maronite church, the liturgy is done in Aramaic, not in the Arabic language. But we speak Arabophone. So Lebanese do not refer to themselves as Arabs. Arabs are Muslims. So they created Jesh Lebanon al-Arabi, and they wanted the Arabic Lebanese army. And Yasser Arafat thought he wants to use Lebanon as a base from which to fight the Jews, attack them, and throw them into the sea. And actually, the Lebanese war started when a Palestinian went into a church on a Sunday morning and started shooting at people. And that's what started the what the world believes is the Lebanese civil war. Basically, the war was between the Lebanese trying to protect their country and their sovereignty and the guests that we welcomed to take care of who became invaders ended up turning against us and literally destroying our country and using our democracy to topple our democracy. Right, right, and right. we are seeing the same thing happen in America today. All right. Wow. That's scary. Okay. So at 10 years old, you're living, where, where are you living in Lebanon? Uh, South Lebanon. I was born and raised in Marjayoun on the border with Israel, actually five kilometers from the border. So 1975 happens. Um, the Palestinians and Muslims began organizing and taking over, taking over towns and cities in Lebanon. Uh, they started shelling my town. They wanted the army base above my town in order for them to take our town. Uh, in the bombing of my home, my 9-11 happened to me when they blew up my home, bringing it down, burying me under the rubble wounded. You're, That's what changed was, my life. Was your family, your family in there also? Your whole family or just you? 
me and my parents, uh, we were there. Uh, thankfully, we all survived. Um, I was wounded. I ended up in a hospital for two and a half months uh, and later ended up living in a bomb shelter underground in an eight by 10 room because our home was destroyed. And um, to get some food, we would crawl under the bombs and dig out for dandelions because it was the only greenery uh, that we had to eat. Stop one second. Right before this, right before this unrest, tell me about what your town was, what your parents did, because I want I want people to listen and understand that this wasn't some backwater area. This was a you you lived in a in a very acculturated area of area. Lebanese spoke many languages, French being one of them. Very worldly and culturally adapt. Many of them were in high finance and banking when most people were pushing push carts. So could you just give me a glimpse into what that life was? Well, I come from a small town called Marjayoun. Uh, most professions in my town are either lawyer, doctor, engineer. My kids always laugh because I would tell my kids, you've got to grow up to become a lawyer, a doctor, and an engineer. You've got to be a professional. Um, and so I come, uh, I'm an only child to a Lebanese businessman. My parents were married for a long time, unable to have any children. And finally, I was born into their life uh, later in life. Uh, and by the time I was born, my father was retired. He was 60. Um, he had taken all his money from his retirement and built a real estate compound. Uh, we had a uh, home we rented. My father built a very famous restaurant in Southern Lebanon. As a matter of fact, it was the most famous restaurant in Southern Lebanon. People would drive an hour just to come to our restaurant and sit outside and look at the Hermon Mountain um, and eat. Uh, I was raised watching television. My father had the first TV in town put in the restaurant, very smart businessman, attracted a lot of mm -hmm. people. Um, and I was raised, you know, listening to conversation, eating at my dad's restaurant every night, um, listening to different conversations around the tables, discussing politics, um, people vacationing. Uh, we had a chauffeur to drive me to school and we had a living maid. Uh, so I come from a very privileged life. Two days before our house was bombed, my father, the banks in Beirut were being robbed. Um, people were being killed. My father went down to the uh, Bank du Liban, uh, the Bank of Beirut, and pulled out his life savings and banknotes because he wanted to flee the country and bring us to the United States, my mom and I. Two days later, my house was bombed and his money was burned to oh, ashes. Yeah, yeah. He became deaf, the bombing blew out his ear ear eardrums. So the only way to communicate with my dad since I was a 10 year old child was to basically yell so he can hear me. Um, that's how we communicated and he lost everything. Our life went from being a life of privilege down to digging out grass to eat, uh, crawling under sniper's bullets to a nearby spring so we can drink some water. Um, to warm up in the wintertime, we had no heat because we lived at the bomb shelter. My father would go out of the rest, uh, out of the bomb shelter and break out twigs from the trees in our garden and bring them in. And he would pour kerosene or benzene or mazout on the fire and light it up so we can warm up. And many nights we would huddle around the fire to warm up. And we had an agreement. Whoever passes out first, whoever wakes up first in the middle of the night, We'll have to drag the other two out 
and slap on the face because many nights we would pass out because of carbon monoxide poisoning because we had no ventilation in our bomb shelter. And because we were so cold and we would huddle around the fire, we would just fall asleep. And so we always had that agreement that night. You wake up, you make sure you drag the other two, make sure they are alive and breathing and awake. You don't just go back to sleep. This is how I lived. This is how my life was turned upside down. I remember Charles, after three years of living in the bomb shelter, the first few years we thought, wait, the wait, first hang two on, weeks, hang on, hang on. You lived three years in a bomb shelter? I lived in that bomb shelter for seven years from the age of 10 till the age of 17, robbed of my youth. Two weeks into our bomb shelter experience, we thought the world is gonna wake up and they're gonna see what's happening to the Christians in Lebanon. America is going to come save wait, the wait, Christians. Wait, wait, hang on, Brazil. What was happening to the Christians in Lebanon at this time? When, when you were at this time, yes. there were mass massacres. Killing. Uh, they, were just destroy, our, they were just cut. They would kill people. People were being killed. They would kill people. One of the famous massacres in Lebanon in 1976 in the city of Damore, which was a Christian city, uh, they went and the Christians hid in the church. They thought they're not going to do anything to us if we are in a church because they're not going to come to a house of worship. And uh, Muslims and Palestinians came in and massacred everybody. They would go into town. They would massacre children, shoot them in cold blood in front of their parents. In the city of the Moor, they even built crosses and they would hang the Christian men on crosses to die. They would not only nail them to the crosses, but they would put honey on their chest so they can be stung by bees. And they, when they would die, they would bring them down. They would cut a cross on their chest. They would cut the males of the genital and stick it in his mouth. And they would laugh. What ISIS was doing just a few years ago to the Christians of the Middle East and to other people was nothing new. This is exactly what the Palestinians did to the Christians in Lebanon. But the media was located in West Beirut, the area that Yasser Arafat controlled. And nothing came out of Beirut from the press that was not approved by Yasser Arafat. Thomas Friedman writes about it in his book, From Beirut to Jerusalem, because that's why the world was not hearing about truly what was happening in Lebanon. And they called it the civil war because the world did not understand. You know, it was like, oh, these people over there, let them all kill each other. You know, Charles, they say this about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict even now um, because they don't understand it. So mass Christians in Lebanon were being massacred. And we thought the world is going to wake up and hear what's happening to the Christians and they're going to come and help the Christians in Lebanon. And we waited and we waited and we waited and nobody came. And so three years into the war, I remember I was 13 years old and a friend of ours stopped by one day and he said, Brigitte, I just want you to know we heard a lot of chatter on the radio and we know that we're going to be attacked tonight. And he said, if I don't see you tomorrow, I wish you a merciful death. And he gave me a hug and he left. And Charles, I remember at the age of 13, dressing in my burial clothes because I wanted to look pretty when I am dead, knowing that when they come to slaughter me, there would be no one to bury me. And I remember putting on my Sunday dress, my Easter dress. It was a blue dress with white daisies. And I remember sobbing, begging my mother, I don't want to die. I'm only 13 years old. Please do something. I don't want to die. And there was nothing my mother could say to me. 
And I remember sitting in the corner of my bomb shelter and my father started reading from Psalms. I shall walk into the valley of death and fear no evil for thou art with me. And my parents said to me that night, they said, look, we lived a long life, you're an only child. When they come to slaughter us, we will create a distraction. And we want you to run as fast as you can. Don't look back, just run towards the Israeli border. You see, we lived five kilometers from the Israeli border. And we knew if we run to Israel and beg for help, at least the Jews are not gonna slaughter us because we had more shared values with them than we had with the Muslims. Thankfully, Charles, I did not have to make that difficult decision that night because that's the night when Israel came in physically into Lebanon and established the security zone and set up artillery bases around my town, around the hills of my town to protect us from the Palestinians coming in and slaughtering us. And this is how we lived for another five years until 1982 when Israel invaded Lebanon. And the reason Israel invaded Lebanon was because Syria at that time was using Lebanese territory to shell Israel. You know, Palestinians and Arabs and Syrians and everybody came from all over the Middle East to fight Israel from Lebanon. So is Syria was shelling Israel using Lebanese territories, calling it the Lebanese resistance. We had nothing to do with it. So Israel started working with the Christian Lebanese working together, helping the Christians take back their democracy and kick out the radical Islamic element that had taken control of the country at that time. Because by the time Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, we had 11 Islamic terrorist organizations operating out of Lebanon, including the PLO. So Israel came into Lebanon and that's what drove Yasser Arafat and his cronies all the way out to Tunisia. And that's how we came out of the bomb shelter and back to rebuilding our lives. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Not surprising when the 21st annual trust barometer published by Edelman Research shows that more Americans distrust institutions like the media, government, and business than ever before. That's why podcasts like The Charles Mizrahi Show have taken off like a moonshot. Because, as Edelman reports, people are craving facts. Real facts. Not the whitewashed mumbo-jumbo cooked up by the financial media. So if you want straight-up facts on where the real money is made in stocks, and you want it served up in a way that's fun, simple to follow, and profitable, stop listening to the turkeys and listen to America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, and how he helped an American patriot you know well make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. For more details, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. So you came in 82, you came to the United States? No. In 1982... I ended up going to Israel, actually, because my mother became wounded by a Muslim shell. This is a really important story that I want to share with you. And I know we have a lot to cover in 40 minutes, but this is an important story. When, as Israel was 
invading Lebanon. My mother became wounded by a shell exploding in front of our bomb shelter by Palestinians as they were retrieving, just shelling us frantically. We had to take her to Israel for treatment because we didn't have anything in our hometown. The hospital was bombed out. We had only one room in our hospital that Israel had fixed and equipped with one doctor and nurses to give first aid to people who were wounded so they can make it until they get to Israel. So before we left to take my mother to the hospital, my father gives me $60. He said, here is some money in case you need it, knowing that we're gonna to go to Israel. We go up to the Lebanese bombed out hospital, to that room, they give my mother first aid. They put her in an Israeli donated ambulance who drove her from the Lebanese location of a hospital to the Israeli border on her way to an Israeli hospital. The, the driver was a Lebanese driver who actually knew my parents. We raced to the border, a 10 minute drive. We get to the border, they take my mother out on a stretcher from that ambulance and put her inside another ambulance to drive her to Yitzfat, which was the nearest hospital that could take care of my mother's injury. The Lebanese driver walks around the ambulance and asks me, he said, do you have any money for the fee for the bus ride, for the ambulance ride? And like an innocent girl, I pull all my money out of my pocket and I show it to her because, you know, when you're 17 years old, you're not, you're not going shopping, you know, at the mall. And so I hand him all my money and he looks at it and he says, give me 30, which was half the money I had. I thanked him very much. I gave him the $30 and we got, I got inside the Israeli, another Israeli ambulance and we drove to the to Itzfat Hospital. This time, the driver was a Miloim. He was an Israeli soldier called in just 12 hours prior, and he was giving us the, the ride. But hang on one second. Miloim is a, he was on reserve. He was on reserve duty, an Israeli, uh, Israeli right. civilian who is now doing military duty. Correct. Uh, so we're driving to the hospital. He's listening to the radio, and I'm watching all these tanks getting ready to go into Lebanon. And he's explaining to me, you know, how far Israel has advanced into Lebanon, you know, what he was hearing on the radio. Um, we get, he treated me with such love and kindness. It was amazing, made me feel very much at ease. We get to the hospital um, out in front of the emergency room. They take my mother out on a stretcher into the emergency room. And I walk around the ambulance to pay the Israeli driver the fee for the ambulance thinking, my gosh, if the 10 minute ride cost me 30, I'm sure I don't have enough money. So I walked up to him and I said, how much do I owe you? Nothing. And he said, he looks at my money and he says, what is this for? I said, this is the fee for the ambulance ride. He said, oh no, you don't owe me any money. This is a free service from us to you. You keep your money and you take good care of your mother and I wish her a speedy recovery. And, and it was nice meeting you, take good care of yourself. And I couldn't believe my ears, my eyes. You know, I thought to myself, what a kind man. What an ethical man. This man could have taken my money and I would not have known the difference. Actually, I would have been thankful that, you know, he only wanted 30 bucks. And then I became angry because I realized the Lebanese driver who actually knew my parents basically robbed me. That was my first lesson in the difference between the Arabic culture and the Israeli culture. We get into the hospital and there were hundreds of people wounded on the floor of the emergency room. Palestinians brought in from Lebanon, Christians brought in from Lebanon, Muslims brought in, Israeli soldiers brought in. And it was a war scene. 
And the doctors treated everyone according to their injury. They did not see nationality. They did not see politics. They did not see um, religion. They saw people in need and they helped. The doctor treated my mother before he treated the Israeli soldier laying next to her because her injury was more severe. It was an amazing thing, Charles. I spent 22 days in that hospital in its spot. Those days changed my life, changed the way I watch television, changed the way I listen to information because I realized I was fed. Arabs are fed a fabricated lie about the Jews and Israel that is so far from reality. And I vowed, I had to go back to Lebanon because I'm an only child and I had to take care of my parents. But I vowed that one day I will return to Israel, that one day I would live amongst those people. These are the characters I wanted to adopt. This is exactly how I wanted to be. And I ended up moving back to Israel in 1984 and working as news anchor for World News based in Jerusalem. I worked in Binyan Ehauma, the nation's building based in Jerusalem in JCS Capital Studios. My book is a must read. Uh, my, my first book is titled Because They Hate. It's a New York Times bestselling books, book. And it details my life story and how I ended up in America. Uh, the book sold over a million copies. Mm. It is a must read titled Because They Hate. Everybody listening to this podcast, if you think this story is interesting, you have got to get that book. Oh, and you didn't even put in the good parts into this, right? <laughs> the book has so many. Wow, that's that's absolutely amazing, amazing. So you became a news anchor for how long did you stay there as a news anchor? Uh, I worked in Israel from 1984 till 1989, and I was based in Jerusalem. Really? Uh, and that's when I started seeing the world really changing. Uh, that's when we started seeing a rise of, of terrorism worldwide. And I started, you know, as a news anchor, you know, reporting with the news night after night, I started realizing there was a pattern developing because no matter where the terrorist activity took place, and I was reporting on terrorism on four continents across the globe, I started realizing that no matter where the terrorist activity took place, the name of the perpetrators were always Islamic. Ahmed, Muhammad, Hussein, the name of the victims were always Westerners, Christians and Jews. Terry Waite, Terry Anderson, Colonel Higgins, Akili Laura, the TWA, the Pan Am flights. I can go on and on. And I started realizing really quickly that what I used to think was a regional problem between a radical Islamic Middle East trying to expel the minority Christians and Jews, kill or expel the minority Christians and Jews, had become a worldwide problem. But the world was not paying attention. The world did not connect the dots. I came to the United States by marriage in 1989, and I thought I left all the crazies behind. I wanted to build a new life in the United States, and I did. Um, I started my own business. I started a television production company, um, you know, working six months out of the year and enjoying the good life with, uh, I have two children with, with my uh, children, playing mother and enjoying the perks of the entertainment industry. Until 9-11, 2001. 9-11-2001 was a defining moment for the United States. It changed the way we live. In 2001, we all did the same thing. We, we, 
what we were glued to our TV screens. We couldn't not get enough news. We were sad. We were depressed. We were, some of us cried. We could not believe someone could hate us so much that they would use airliners as human missiles and fly them into skyscrapers. Uh, we all did the same thing. It was a defining moment to our nation, but it was especially a defining moment for me. That day, my kids came home from school. And of course, they didn't tell them what had happened. My daughter came home, my daughters came home, and I was watching the images of the World Trade Center come down again and again. We all did the same thing on September 11th. My youngest daughter looks at me and she says, mommy, why did they do this to us? And I found myself repeating to my daughter the exact same words my father said to me when I was lying in a hospital bed in Lebanon when I was 10 years old, her age, hooked up to IVs in both arms, when I asked my daddy, why did they do this to us? And I said to my daughter, they hate us because they consider us infidels and they want to kill us. Here we were, two generations apart, two, 30 years apart, I was a young Lebanese girl who spoke Arabic. She's a young American girl who speaks English. 8,000 miles apart, 30 years apart, two continents apart. And I found myself repeating the same words to my daughter. That day was my defining moment. That day I vowed that I will do everything I can to make sure that my daughter will never ever have to look into her child's eye, yet unborn, and repeat to him or to her what my daddy said to me and what I had to say to her. That day was my defining moment. That day I was reborn as an activist. I sat on my couch, September 11th happened on a Tuesday morning till Sunday. I was in my family room, in my nightgown, watching television, crying. It was flashback. It was when I was watching the images of the World Trade Center, I could smell the smoke because I know what the smoke of bombs smell like. I could hear the wailing of parents yelling for their children because I could hear the wailing of my own parents yelling for me as I was pinned wounded under a wall. I could taste the blood that I tasted as I was wounded, dripping blood on my face and my, and my mouth, drinking it, thinking, what is this terrible tasting thing I'm drinking? It was flashback to me. And I started seeking, what can I do to make a difference for my country? What can I do? I started searching, what can I do? And by Sunday, I realized, I'm gonna start an organization and I'm gonna educate millions of uninformed Americans about the threat of radical Islam to world peace and national security. I'm gonna fight against evil. I'm gonna mobilize citizens to stand up to evil, to stand up to terrorism in any form, Islamic, Christian, Jewish, or otherwise, to stand up for those who are unable to speak. You know, I found my purpose at a very young age. I was in my mid-30s when September 11th happened. Many people live a lifetime without realizing their purpose or their destiny. I was one of the fortunate ones. So I started an organization called Act for America. And I named the organization Act for America. Not think about America, not wish for America, not hope for America, not pray for America. 
but act for America. Because you can do all the thinking, hoping, wishing, and praying. But if you don't take action, nothing happens. So I encourage people to go to my website, our website, actforamerica.org, and check us out, join us, get involved, and start standing up so we can save our country, the United States of America. Because my past is America's, is America's future. Unless we stand up today together, Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists, people of faith, all of us who value this amazing, incredible country, founded on Judeo-Christian principles, which is the foundation of Western civilization. That's where we get our freedom of speech. That's where we get our freedom of religion. That's where we get all the incredible blessings we share in this nation. Uh, look, Charles, your heritage, some of it is Middle Eastern, you know, Syrian, I'm Lebanese. But we came to this country and we became successful, very successful in some measure, because America is the land that gives people like you and me an opportunity to start from zero with a degree in our back pocket and become somebody and become successful and build a life and provide jobs for others. Now is the time to stand up and fight for the nation that blessed us so much so our children and our grandchildren can enjoy the freedom that we both have. Can I, can I get a question in here? No, you can get a question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, look, your, your life is a history of what actually happens instead of hearing it through news reporters or newspapers. This is the reality of it. So even that, even that short insight into a Lebanese ambulance driver uh, and an Israeli reservist on duty driving you tells amazing, amazing tales of two different cultures, two different religions. And Israel was doing the same thing with Syrian, the Syrian refugees in 2012 That's and right. afterwards. And they were going That's out. Right. And they, so it, it doesn't stop. It, it doesn't stop. It, it's, it's a... It's, but yeah. May I add something about what they're doing with the Syrians? I went back to Israel in 2018 uh, because I wanted to visit my parents' grave. My parents are buried with Oscar Schindler on Mount Zion. Oh, really? Wow. If you've ever visited Oscar Schindler's grave, you have literally mm. walked by my parents' grave. So I took my family and I went back to Israel. I wanted to show my children uh, my parents' grave. And I went to Isfat. And I visited the hospital and went into the room where my mother was, was laid, you know, being, being taken care of. And I took my daughter because I wanted her to see this and my husband with me, et cetera. And in 2018, they were treating Syrians who were brought in because of the war in Syria with ISIS and everything. And they were hiding them in the hospital because the Syrians did not want anybody knowing that they are being treated because their family would be killed right, in Syria. Right, right. And in many times, these Syrians, they would literally be brought from Syria to the border with Israel. Some doctors would send them with a yellow pad, with a yellow note pinned to their clothing. This person was blown up by this and that you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's all the Israeli yeah. doctors had to go on. And it's happening today. And the world doesn't want to talk about it. The world doesn't want to acknowledge it. And when the Israelis bring it up, the world doesn't want to listen. But when Hamas was sending rockets from Gaza, Hamas members, families were being treated in Israeli hospitals. That's right. This is just that's absolutely right. insane. I want to get to something you said earlier, Brigitte. Brigitte, you said, what does Brigitte mean in Arabic? 
Does it mean anything? It's a French name. Remember, Lebanon, oh, yeah, Lebanon was yeah. it used to be a colony true, of French. True. So you, the Lebanese, all Christians have true. Christian uh, French, French names. French names, yeah, you're very highfalutin. So anyway, Brigitte, here's the thing. <laughs> any all the Lebanese people I know are, are very. They believe they're very a culture. They're very they're very um, up up and up like you, <laughs> in, in a very nice way. In a very I hope nice that's way. a good thing. Uh, it's only a good thing, right? The way you carry yourself, the way they the Lebanese are beautiful people. Uh, you, you said something earlier that the world doesn't get it, and um, it it seems to me. And you said it's it's already here. So here's my question to you from, from all the positions and vantage points you've seen this, from being a child buried in rubble to seeing 9-11. And, you know, by the way, I just want to show you this. This, this sits in my desk here, you know. Oh, wow. And, and I just want to tell these are for listeners on the podcast. I have a picture here of 9-11. I remember when this actually happened, when the firemen were raising the American flag and they kept hoping every day we were waiting to see who was buried underneath and who would come out. And unfortunately, no one, they were all evaporated. But these guys work so hard. And if you could see here, which just breaks your heart again, the white dust on their clothing, which was yeah. asbestos and all. And many of these people today, these firemen and these first responders are dying from cancer. Uh, so yeah. they, they gave so, so much, uh, really, really to, to try to help on, on just one act, which is abominable. So anyway, I just want to, want to bring up the point. Why, why doesn't a civilized world get this? Why don't they get this message? Why, we're, we're not, we're not, you're not fabricating anything. These are facts on the ground, yet the news media is skewed towards the, the Islamic militant, the, the Islamo-terrorists. Why isn't this message that is getting out there of peaceful coexistence. Why isn't it out there? Why are we hearing all this terrible thing and how Israel is the thing and America is a terrible country? What are we missing? Oh, I can tell you from somebody who comes from a television background. Today in the visual age, people look for something that makes good TV. So when you have Palestinians screaming and wailing and yelling and beating their chest and, and, and rolling in the dirt on the foot of buildings that's crumbled and showing the little teddy bear of the little kids, it pulls up the heartstrings of the world and they stop listening to logic. And that's why when, when the Palestinians come to America and they start speaking about Palestinian suffering, you've got Jewish lawyers on television trying to explain yeah. uh, UN resolution article 41, 42, you know, talking all this legal mumbo jumbo and trying to make the case. Oh, the Palestinians, yeah, it is to say, oh, Palestinian women, pregnant women held at this checkpoint for eight hours in the sun, you know, breastfeeding her baby and suffering. People can picture that. So this is why when people like you and me who speak the truth about the situation, we are called haters. Uh, uh, bigots. Uh, well, nowadays, everybody's called haters, bigots, racist. racist yeah. You're white supremacists because you are anti-brown people because Palestinians are brown people. So now, they because they cannot argue with the facts, they accuse you, they lay, stick labels on you. You're a hater. You are apartheid. Israel is an apartheid state. Israel is the oppressor. They use buzzwords, but they don't explain anything. They just call you names. So today, when you Google people who are 
speaking up in defense of Israel or in defense of uh, what's happening on the ground and identifying evil, people like me, we are called haters. People don't tell you why we're haters, but they just accuse you of being a hater. They accuse you of being a racist because you're anti-brown people, even though I've got a tan Middle Eastern mm -hmm. skin, I'm still accused of being a racist simply because I do not talk the, the, the language of the left, which is now bringing together, uh, turning everything into racism. So when you have Linda Sarsour, who's whiter than milk, but she's the Palestinian spokesperson being called a brown person as oppressed. Now she belongs to the brown group because she's a Palestinian. Race is no longer important in that situation. So it's a pick and choose. But this is why we who are speaking the truth need to realize that we all need to stick together and don't let the labels bother you. Look, the New York Times called me not just an Islamophobe. I'm a radical Islamophobe. Why? because they couldn't find after a two hour interview with me, one sentence they can use against me in the way I speak. So they titled the article when they did an article about me for their New York magazine, Sunday magazine, a radical Islamophobe. Because CARE, who's a Hamas front in America, were calling me an Islamophobe to silence me when I speak in defense of Israel. Because they couldn't argue with my fact as a Lebanese, uh, quote, Arab woman, if you want to call me an Arab woman, who lived in Israel, who can speak based on facts, who lived on the ground. Because they couldn't dispute my facts. They had to slap a label on me. And that's why when you, when you Google any conservatives who call these labels, you need to ignore it. We are speaking the truth, and we need to stick with that and stick together and lift each other up. So you started a few minutes ago, more than a few minutes ago, talking about how they're already here, how these Islamic fascist terrorists already here in this country, how we're under assault. One, where do you see that? And number two, how fearful are you for America? I am very fearful for America because the new generation of Americans not only does not understand history, they have not read history, they could care less about learning about history. So those of us who come from countries who are now falling apart, look, Lebanon, there's a humanitarian crisis on Lebanon right now. People are fighting in grocery stores for milk and bread for their children. The, the country, the government dropped the people out of their money. There are no more money in the banks because the leaders robbed it. All the leaders are millionaires. They've got their money in Switzerland and all the people are hurting and suffering and nobody's paying attention. We've seen this movie before in Venezuela, in Cuba, in Lebanon, now happening right before our eyes. We have a country that went from Paris of the Middle East to now looking like Venezuela where people fighting each other for milk in the grocery store. And so when I see people in America calling for socialism, uh, when I see people in America marching for Marxism, when I see people in America condemning people like me who stand up for capitalism, which is what made this country great, standing up for small government, free thought, free speech. I may not agree with the way you think about something, but I would die fighting for your right to say it, even though I don't agree with it, because that's what made America great. Let's debate idea and let's the best ideas win. Right now, the left is trying to silence us and they are using language to scare us into silence. When you have Google, Twitter, uh, uh, Facebook. Um, Facebook, Instagram, you know, everything, they control technology and they are silencing people like you and me. That's a problem. Uh, and when you see groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center 
or the ADL, who is no longer an organization that is in the middle fighting for the Jewish people or for the oppressed people. It's a leftist, activist, Marxist, communist organization working to undermine the United States of America. So when you have the ADL and the Council of American Islamic Relations, which is Hamas in the United States, we basically have a partnership between the ADL and Hamas working together as one to undermine the United States of America. When you have the Southern Poverty Law Center working with NATE, the North American Islamic Trust, when you have the ACLU working as basically the pro bono legal firm for CARE, Council on American Islamic Relations, which is Hamas Front in America, we have a problem. So when I talk about influence operation within the United States and you see the extent of the infiltration of the Islamic influence operation, basically in Congress with Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, the squad who are now more influential than Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer with millions of followers, we have a problem. Have, we have infiltration. Rashid, have you ever reached out or spoken to uh... Elon Omar or Rashid uh, in any context, in anything? Because uh, here they're no. zero. They wouldn't entertain any type of dialogue with you. No, they would not. And I would not waste my time because I come from them. I know how they think. Right. I understand my enemy. I know how my enemy thinks. And that's what America does not understand. They think we can reason with people who made up their mind and who understand our weakness. Because believe me, they understand our weakness. The West does not understand its own weakness. And that's why we're working very hard in the United States. My organization, Act for America, uh, we are working very hard in passing critical race theory, stop critical race theory bills in schools. We're working very hard on passing election integrity bills in different states. Um, we have passed so far this year 15 bills in multiple states, and we have 19 pending. Uh, and that's why I encourage people, go to actforamerica.org, join us, get involved, get our emails so we can reach you when there is a bill coming down for a vote. Right now, we're working on petitions to strip both Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar from all their committee assignments. I don't believe someone like Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib should be serving on any influential committees or any committees that have to deal with national intelligence, Department of Homeland Security. Um, they need to be foreign stripped of all these positions. Foreign affairs, Ilhan Omar is on a foreign Absolutely. affairs committee? It's all, same thing, same thing. So we have the 2022 midterm elections coming up. Have you been working with Republican congresspeople and, and those who are running for office in order to expand that majority in the House? Absolutely. Uh, I am a political activist as a person, not as the head of an organization. We can educate as a nonprofit, but as a person, uh, I use my platform to mobilize and organize people to meet with their elected official. In our organization, we are encouraging people as American citizens to participate in the American uh, election process and run for school board, city council, uh, state elected officials, governors, uh, members of Congress, uh, we have people now by the hundreds uh, that we know within our own membership are running for different uh, elected offices. And we train them and we teach them how to do it. And we get people in their community to go out and work with them. It's all about a grassroots. A grassroots is where it's at. This is the wonderful thing about the United States. Yeah. Community organizing 101. 
Yeah, you know, uh, all politics is local, and it's more important who your councilman is than who the president is because he's going to pick up exactly. your garbage each week. So uh, those are the things. And we had a great community organizer as president uh, from 2008 for two terms. So community organizers can move up. But I, I really applaud you and your organization for getting into this grassroots because um, we need a reset. And I'm not saying who to vote for, nor do I really uh, want to give my opinion on if you listen to my show, you know who I'm thinking of. But the point is, is that we need we need to have people in office who share the same moral and ethical values, love of this country, love of freedom. And you don't get it by sitting home and not voting because exactly the, the penalty for refusing leadership is to be ruled by someone inferior to yourself. And we're seeing that we're seeing many members of Congress who should not be there, as you mentioned. They don't serve the same the same government, the same constitution, the same declaration. When you put Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and United States in the same tweet, is a problem. There's a problem, exactly. And a lot of things happen between voting. A lot of people, you know, think, you know, I did my duty, I went out and voted every two years. But you're forgetting the importance of being active locally on the local level. Yeah. Look, yeah. it is city council members who defund police. They're the ones who defund the police. It is the mayors who tell the police to stand down. It is the state delegates who decide to use Dominion machines in their state. Um, we need to be engaged on every level. And look, we have done that and it worked even under Obama. Under Obama, when Obama was president, we knew we could not pass any bills on the, on the federal level. So we started passing bills on the local level. Under, when Obama was in office between 2008 and 2016, Act for America, my organization, passed over 75 bills on the state level to protect America. 75 bills on the state level. Up to date right now, we are at 114 bills at the federal level and the state level. And so local engagement is fine. And, and what I tell people is sign up, go to actforamerica.org and sign up as an activist. Click on get involved, sign up as an activist. You can be a keyboard activist. We're not asking you to show up to a meeting. We're not asking you to go out for a rally or a demonstration. We're asking you when you get an action alert from us, sign up as an activist. So when there's an action alert about a bill coming down in your state for a vote, we are able to reach you in a timely manner to make your voice heard. To give you an example, two days ago, we sent an action alert to Pennsylvania. There's a CRT, critical race theory bill, coming down for a vote in Pennsylvania. We needed people, we wanted to be signed into law because instead of waiting to get people elected for school board, oh my gosh, look what's happening in our schools. We need to get run for school boards, elect for school boards. That requires time. You get a state to pass a bill on a state level that bans critical race theory, you've done it with a click. It's done now. We don't have another year to waste brainwashing another year of students. And so that's the importance of signing up to get our emails and signing up as an activist so you can be engaged. And by the way, let us know your address when you fill in to sign up as an activist. Don't just give us an email. I will not know whether you live in Pennsylvania or Colorado unless I have your address. So if there's a bill coming down for a vote in Colorado and I don't know you live there, you're not going to get notification about any bill coming down for, for, for a vote in Colorado. I say this, Charles, because I know we have a lot of people listening right now on podcast nationwide, and I want to make sure they understand the importance of local activism and activism in a smart way, and that includes 
being able to reach you and know where you are yeah. so we can reach yeah, you. No, you, you, you hit the nail on the head with uh, school boards, federal judges on the state level, on, on the, on the, on the um, municipal level. It's more important who my mayor is than who's running the country. And unfortunately, That's right. it's de Blasio in New York, so we got a big, big problem. But hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll change. Uh, Brigitte, I, I, I literally could have another four or five hours talking to you. Well, really not talking to you, listening to you talk to me, which is beautiful because you make my job so easy. I just say <laughs> one question and I just sit back. So you, you're, you're, you're a dream. And, and I want to thank, thank you. you. I want to thank you. It's such a, it's such a um, you know, agree or disagree, folks, with what she's saying. The fact is she's speaking from passion. She's speaking from a good place and not an evil place. So you can disagree with it if you want, but what's to disagree with? If, if it's to make this country a better place and to really unify people instead of separate people. And really, you know, every, there's one thing that Dennis Prager always says. He goes, there's really two types of people. There's the decent and the indecent. And it's our job to get rid of the indecent ones, the evil ones, because the evil ones are destroyers. And you can't have a society with evil people. And when I say evil, you can't say, oh, people aren't evil. When people behead, crucify, destroy, simply because of what religion you are or what country you come from, that's the personification of evil. We have to call evil for what it is. And that's why, you know, I, just on the side for one second, why Ronald Reagan is by far, to me, my favorite president. And one defining moment is he was the only person at his time to say, as president, he called Russia the evil empire. Because to call evil during its time evil takes courage. And to call it afterwards, well, during the time he was calling it, it was considered an alternate government. It was a different thing. No one would. They were, when he crossed it out three times in his speech, uh, that they, they crossed it out, they didn't want him to use it. He kept penciling it in. And to have the courage to call evil, and I think that's what you're doing. You're calling out yep. evil for what it is and how it affects all of us, and you're standing on top of the mountain screaming about it based on where you've been, based on what happened to your life. In a heartbeat, your life went from happiness to sadness uh, and destruction. Uh, and a flash. And evil, if I may add, Charles, is parents using their children as a human shield, yeah, sacri yeah. willing to kill their own children to make a political point. Our job is to stand up and defend yeah. these children. And what's so mind boggling is that the media would stand up with Hamas and the parents who are sending their children to die and sacrificing them instead of standing up for the truth. That's why our job is difficult, but our job will be much more easier if we all come together and agree that evil is evil. There is truth and we need to speak the truth. You cannot sugarcoat evil. You cannot say, oh, it's okay. They just want to kill one child. They've got another nine. So let them blow up one child as a suicide bomber. That's fine. That is evil. That is child abuse in the highest form. When I face my creator at the end of my life, I want to be able to say, I stood up for the weak. I fought as hard as I can against evil and for justice. And for me, that is so important to pass on to my children so they will understand the importance of standing up and speaking the truth. Because it's, if good men don't stand up and speak out, 
evil dwells. Mm. And it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I will not be silenced and neither are you. And that's what I love about you, Charles. Mm. Thank you so mm. much for having me with you and having the courage to have a strong woman like me, who's not afraid to speak the truth, to come on your podcast. We are in a, in, in a society today where people are afraid of their shadow, are afraid to speak up, Lest, be, lest they be looked down upon or called names. And it's going to take courageous people like us, you and me and our listeners. And I hope we have a lot of courageous people and our listeners to stand with us, to support us. Speaking of support, please go to actformerica.org and support us if you are able financially. We need you as well. The left has Soros. We don't. We need you so together we can fight and we can fight smartly to win this war for truth. Rajit, I don't know how to even add to that, so I'm going to stop here. It, it, you, you, uh, you, could you come on again when we have more time? We'll have a whole. Uh, well, I'd love to. I'd love to revisit with I you. I would love that. At the end of the year, at the end of the year, just to see how things hopefully have changed for the better, and to hear what you're doing in terms of your activism, your organization, because all the power to you. We should have, you know, you, you're just a, 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 just, just good force, just continually pushing forward and. And you're up against a tremendous opponent. You know, you're up against billions of dollars that are calling you out, threatening your life, threatening your family, threatening everything you're Character doing. Character assassination, yeah. ruining my reputation, yeah. because that's what they do when you speak up in defense of truth. Yeah, beautiful. Brigitte, thank you so much for being on the show. God bless you. And, and continue as you get stronger and stronger, if even that's possible. I think you're at the top. So uh, I, I look to you and I say, wow, I got so much more to do. Hey, I always seek to improve. You're wow, never at the top. Wow. You're always trying to get to the top. There is no top. Beautiful. And that's the secret to American success. We love that. Isn't it great? Beautiful. It's a new dream, new challenge every day. Beautiful. Brigitte, thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks. you for having me with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.